the entire lifeline of this whole industry. No one's finished it yet. So we are all imposters to a certain degree. Hi, I'm Joel Pilger, and you're listening to episode 80 of the Rev Thinking Podcast. Today, my guest is Ryan Summers, and our topic is if you don't design your career. Welcome to Rev Thinking, the podcast for creative entrepreneurs who know the best way to deal with the future is to create it. This is the conversation between creative leaders and consultants discussing what it really takes to run a thriving creative business. Hello, RevThinkers. It's Joel here. I am coming to you with episode 80, which is a very cool milestone. Now, to be completely honest, I have heard from a lot of listeners asking, what's up with the RevThinking podcast? The past few months, we've been a little slow releasing episodes, which is simply lack of planning and time and busyness and holidays. But the good news is we're back. I've got a whole bunch of great guests lined up for the next few months. So I encourage you to listen, tune in every other week. We try and release on Wednesdays and we're going to have some killer guests and conversations. On the alternating weeks, we release Rev Thoughts, which is conversations between Tim Thompson and myself that you may have noticed in the feed. So that's the deal with the podcast. So I'm excited with that, but I'm also excited because today my guest on the podcast, I just had a conversation with Ryan Summers. Now, Ryan has had a distinguished career in the industry so far. He worked at uh, Digital Kitchen most recently. He was a freelancer at places like We Are Royale, Blur Studios, Oddfellows, Midnight Sherpa. Uh, he also did a stint uh, as a staffer at Imaginary Forces. But interestingly, Ryan is currently a creative director at School of Motion. And he talks a little bit about that and why he's making that move in his career. The thing I really like about Ryan is more than his, his history and his experience, it's that he's a veteran of our industry and a leader. And he's, he's seeing some trends and he's speaking out and trying to help our industry grow stronger. And this is where he's speaking to not only animators and motion designers, but in particular to freelancers and studio owners. And I think you'll appreciate what he has to say as it pertains to the field of motion design is still relatively young. And we've seen these amazing and large changes in such a short period of time. And to his point, no one yet has really lived out an entire lifetime or an entire career in our industry. But he talks about what he's seeing and some of the trends that are maybe not so positive, but then and more importantly, what should we do about it and where can we go with it? And how can we be more entrepreneurial in the way that we approach careers in this industry? I once heard someone say, if you don't design your career, someone else will. And I thought that would be a good title for this episode because it's really gets to the heart of what Ryan and I talk about. So let's get to it. Let's talk about you and how you can design your career in my conversation with Ryan Summers. It's, uh, it's funny because a lot of times I'll ask if you want me to do it forwards or backwards because I, I have it down forwards, but sometimes I try to, I try to challenge myself and go backwards. But um, <laughs> forwards, the, is forwards, <laughs> forwards is fine. Um, it, it's a funny case of like taking a long time to figure out the thing that you, you really want to do and should be doing, but in hindsight, it's super obvious looking back. But um, I actually started uh, in, in going to college as a chemical engineer if you believe anything. Um, and I did it for about okay. two years. I was a physics yeah. major at Georgia Tech, oh, so I can relate. I was, 
I was thinking about doing physics, but I, I went into chemical engineering. But it was like it was first year was a toss up, um, which physics makes sense for an animator. Um, chemical engineering maybe not so much. Um, but I was taking you know like all your your like kind of extra classes. I was always drawing. It was always film study, just like stuff that I thought was fun that like up until then I never had access to. Um, and then I I just the guy who was running our IT lab, just a, like a guy maybe five years younger than, or older than me, he walked up to me one day he's like i saw your drawing uh do you want to learn 3d animation and i was like what does that even mean like this is aging myself but like it was um maybe like jurassic park had just been out night before christmas was kind of kicking stop motion gear and then toy story was out so i'm like i I don't even know how this would be possible and he had somehow gotten his hands on like free licenses of 3d studio when it was dos like before it was even windows which is insane um but he basically essentially got um the key to the lab and the 10 people that signed up for this class were locked into the into the computer lab on Saturdays for like it was like a 12 week semester and legitimately like maybe 2 weeks into it it was the first time I ever felt like I've been in a flow state it was like when you hear people talk about being handed a guitar and everything just like the world just starts singing. Um, it's the first time in my life I ever felt that. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go to my parents. I'm going to have to tell them, I think I'm changing my career. I think I want to be an artist. And that just, that, like, that was so foreign to like, not just my, my family, but really like where, like I'm from the South side of Chicago. It, it was not like something you did. And this is before, like you could go to school for video gaming before there were a lot of computer kind of like animation, like programs out there um so it was a really weird home run swing um loved it did like two and a half years of school got really lucky that when i got out um i was working as an animator for a very small kind of like service bureau um in chicago there was a a, a kind of animation company that was doing they did veggie tales basically but because they got they got so busy so quickly um there was a lot of spill-off work kind of like these these little studios started popping up right the little satellites that just beg for more work and we were one of them I worked there for about a year, loved it, was working crazy hours, but it was like, you know, going to get your master's degree, actually doing it full on animation. Um, And then the company making VeggieTales, they overextended themselves, tried to make a feature, totally bombed out. Um, All that work dried up. And then I got into uh, technically the gaming industry, but um, the company I was at was, it was across the street from Midway, which is a legitimate gaming company making like Mortal Kombat and all the old school kind of like arcade games, but we were making video slot machines, which sounds kind of probably disappointing or lame, but the amazing, <laughs> the amazing thing about it was they were doing tons of 2d animation. Lots of guys that were trained in like, like traditional, like um, Saturday morning cartoons or like after school cartoons. But at the same time, um, I knew 3D and no one there did. So I got into being like a leadership position at a really young age. But the coolest thing was Disney was starting to shut down 2D across the country and they shut their Florida studio down. And I happened to know a couple of people and I brought in to my own team like three or four Disney animators. And I basically was, again, able to give myself this like master's degree experience by leading a team full of people 10 to 15 years older than me. But basically, I was using them to teach me the stuff that I would never have had access to. So every lunch before, you know, um, the job started after sometimes I would just be sitting with the guys that were working for me, basically teach, having them teach me, like just basically giving the manual on how to be a Disney animator. Um, I did that for, I did that for like about seven years. I was basically like part-time in, in, in Vegas, you know, going out there once, twice a month, testing games, um, learned a lot about game theory and a lot about like, just kind of like psychology of like an audience and psychology of kind of like your clients, which was really cool. I never expected that. But then after about seven years, I kind of tapped out. I actually jumped over to the Chicago board of trade which is again another weird path um but i was working on kind of like pre-streaming like before um justin tv and like youtube streaming we were basically i I call it like near time 
delivery. So we basically would run over, we'd run into the CBOT, um, you know, the pits where everybody's yelling and screaming and trading. If you've ever seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off, you know, like that, that kind of world. Um, and we basically stick one of our, our reporters in the middle of it, record him at the, the top of the bell, you know, going off. We'd run across the hallway and in less than 10 minutes, we'd edit everything together and we'd start, we'd save this stuff out and we'd send it off to our kind of our newsletter. We had people paying like $500 a week to get like options trading heat from people down on the floor. So it was super cool. It was another like fire, like, like trial by fire. Like I really wanted to learn how to shoot. I really wanted to learn how to edit and produce. Um, and I got in because I was the motion designer, but I very quickly really started liking like shooting and editing. Um, and then we started doing live stuff and we started traveling. I got them to start doing kind of like short form documentary stuff um, just to kind of get my head around it. And then I think, I think I did that about for a year, year and a half. And then I moved to LA. I um, started working for this company that was doing like live streaming podcasts. Um, I turned that into like, a, I, I snuck in the door at a, uh, a show called um, Talking Dead. It was the kind of after show for Walking Dead. And I really like, I was doing all the motion graphics for them. Um, and I got to see like the closest thing to like a performance you can have in motion design, like running a live TV show with, with graphics, which is totally frightening and exciting at the same time. And I got a call while I was doing that, that uh, a friend of a friend of mine um, needed anybody they could find. And they'd tapped their entire kind of list of everything. They went through the whole Rolodex twice and they landed on me um, and they called me in to do um, some After Effects work at Imaginary Forces. And from there, like I never left. I, I basically lived. I, I basically lived at Imaginary Forces. I moved closer so I could walk there. And I, I like by hook or by crook, I did everything I could to like learn as much as I could there. Went staff, started directing, um, and I, was, I think I was there for about four years. Then um, I did the same thing everybody does. You you work at a big place, you work on a couple jobs, and you get really excited about kind of running your own stuff. And I left. I did like the water bottle tour across all the different studios, um, and then. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And then I, I ended up like freelancing all the studios I really, really loved. Like I spent a lot of time at uh, We Are Royale. I got to remote for Oddfellows. I spent some really great time at Blur working directly with Tim Miller, which was awesome. I worked on the on the Deadpool titles with him. And then I got a call from Digital Kitchen, which was my hometown kind of studio. When I left Chicago to go to LA, I, the only place I would have ever considered coming back was DK because they did very filmic, very high level, very artistically driven you know content. And they didn't really do a lot of... You know, I guess the best way to say is like meat and potatoes work. What I found in Chicago before I left was people were just doing McDonald's commercials, car commercials, like local car dealership stuff. It wasn't really exciting, but DK always had something. They had these crazy titles. They had a very filmic look to everything they did. Um, and I got a call to come back. So I was um, there for about three years. And just this last month, Digital Kitchen has kind of consolidated, shut down all of its studios except for the one in LA. And um, the they the direction they were going was not really a direction I wanted to go. So um, I was considering a lot of different things, a lot of big tech companies and a couple of motion design studios and a, a really great interactive studio that works on like theme park stuff. But I ended up at School of Motion with Joey Corman. And it's um, one of the most exciting things I've done so far. So that's that's where I'm at now. That's the as fast as I could do it. And your role. Yeah. No, thanks for, for rocking through that. And your role at School of Motion. What's what's the title? What's the role? I'm technically the creative director of the 2D curriculum. It's I'm, I'm sharing basically the workload with EJ Hassenfraz. The, he's the creative director for the 3D side, but essentially we're tag teaming everything, right? Like EJ's got a, a great design sensibility. I have a lot of background in history with 3D, um, but we're basically trying to create the best possible curriculum at the best price point for the most amount of people in the world, right? Like there's so much great 
so many great schools out there, but they're brick and mortar schools that are destinations that are very, very cost prohibitive. They very much appeal to a certain set of potential students. Um, and we try to appeal to everybody else, including them as well. But um, it, you look at CalArts and Art Center and Otis, you know, Ringling, all, all these schools, you start stacking up and it, it's a heavy, heavy price. And to be totally honest, I've, I've teach brick and mortar. I've done it in the past. I, I probably will in the future too. To be totally honest, a lot of those schools, the, the, the instructors there are great, but they aren't working right now. The best thing I think about School of Motion besides the community that we've built is that the instructors there are people who are working and in the trenches right now. Um, so it's an interesting, heady mix of, of, you know, trying to take advantage of technology, take advantage of remote, kind of like the freedom of people being able to learn remotely, um, the ability to kind of create community without being able to physically be next to someone. Um, it's a really exciting opportunity. Well, believe me, I have a daughter at SCAD, so mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. uh, I can I can relate because um, that's 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 obviously a big uh, commitment and an investment. But I think the thing that I find so interesting is just looking at the overall arc, right, mm-hmm. of your career. Um, mine has some similarities, but I I love that you go back far enough in the industry that when your story story begins, like mine, it's things like, oh yeah, there were these guys that had invented this computer called Silicon Graphics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was there at the birth of uh, Photoshop and Softimage, and you yeah. had your own version, right, of those things. And we've seen our industry, of course, initially be very driven by 3D and visual effects, and then it evolved. And then there was sort of the digital and desktop revolution right. that, that came about. The invention, I'll call it, of motion graphics, uh, and of course, IF and their role with Seven and the world sort of discovering there's this thing called motion design. But that whole sweep, because that brings us up to today in the present tense, and I'm, I want to ask you to tell a little story that you shared mm-hmm. with me earlier about this experience that you had when you were doing this fireside chat mm-hmm. at Camp MoGraph, and mm-hmm. you asked everyone a question. And I thought, yeah, how did we get here? What's going on? Do you mind sharing that story? Yeah. I mean, if you don't know about it, uh, Camp MoGraph, it was run for the first time last year by the MoGraph.com team. Um, and it was, it's kind of, you know, the, every industry has great conferences. And I, I don't think, I think motion design has some too. Uh, Blend is obviously amazing, held in Vancouver. Um, there's always NAB and Seagraph, which are really tech focused, but um, the Maxon team always does a great job kind of creating community. But Catmograph was just this totally different thing. It was, you're encouraged to like not bring your computer, disconnect. It was held in the middle of a legitimately a YMCA camp on a, on a lake in the middle of Vermont. And it was just this like strange, strange experience with, I think like 60, 70 other people. No one really knew what it was going to be. There was a lot of buzz that it, it could turn into the, the fire fest of motion graphics, that it could just be this huge flame out failure. And it turned out to be this I don't know, for me, I can say, because I was in the middle of trying to figure out my next step, just this transformative event. Um, And a lot of it was because it was just this return to very analog handcraft, like skills that we all loved when we were in in school or when we were kids, but we don't really do that much now. And it was just this like weird, like awakening of everybody in this community of people that we all know each other. Almost everybody knew each other. 
almost none of us met each other, right? So there's even this other like second layer of virtualization on top of the fact that all of our tools are digital. Um, we know each other, but we don't, we don't really. Um, and I was, I was invited and I felt really fortunate. I, I held the first fireside chat of three nights. Um, and it was basically, we sat in this room, huge fireplace, kind of like stadium seating, 60, 70 people. And I, I asked them a couple of questions. And I think, I can't remember which one I told you I asked, but I, I'll go back and try to remember. But just the simply, are you happy? Yes, <laughs> which yeah, I thought was yeah. such a simple question. Yeah. And I mean, that was, that's really kind of born from the fact that, you know, I, um, the other question, another question I asked was, um, does, does anybody feel imposter syndrome? And well, not everybody raised their hands when they said, are you happy? Which wasn't surprising. Almost unanimously, everybody raised their hand and said, yes, yes, I, I, I feel imposter syndrome. And I, I think it's great that there's a name to it, but I also feel like it's become somewhat of a, um, I don't know the right way to say it without offending people, but somewhat of a crutch or somewhat of a, um, a, a kind of like rallying cry, like, oh, yes, I feel like an imposter. And I, I feel like that's actually, it's absolutely 100% true, but it, it's going to be true because no one in this industry has gone from learning about it, going to school, getting their first job, becoming a freelancer, starting their own shop or, or returning back to a studio and then retiring right? Like the entire lifeline of this whole industry that services so many different things. No one's finished it yet. Like not even Danny Yount has not finished it. Kyle Cooper has not finished it. There is not an example for a way, not the way, but a way to do it. So we are all imposters to a certain degree. Um, but I think, I think the question you were getting at, I, I asked three questions. Um, I think the one in Kirk if I'm wrong, the one I asked is like, when, when you get into the industry, like, what did you think you were going to do? Like, like, why did you get into the industry? And now that you're three years, five years, 10 years, 15 years, does it line up to what your expectations or your thought or your expectation, like what you wanted from it when you first started? And it kind of like, I hope that was a question that you're wondering about because everyone was very quiet after I answered that. Like the, the only, the, because I, I talk to a lot of people, right? I do these open office hours and people can talk to me at lunch. Um, I speak at schools. I do these things. And Whenever I talk to people young in the, in, the, in the industry, it's always, oh, man, I want to work at Oddfellows. I want to work at Buck. I want to work at Giant Ant. But then when I ask them, that's great. I ask them why. There's nowhere near as much like energy or, or like enthusiasm for why other than that's the best place to work at. Right. Or, or I, I would work with person X. Um, but when people get in the industry, they get there three, four, five years. And even if they do make it to that place. When they're there, let's take Buck as an example. Um, it's not what they thought it was, and it's not Buck's fault. But there's just this built-up expectation that oh, I made it. I, I'm on. I'm on holy ground, right? I'm gonna get. I'm gonna be amazing. I'm gonna work on the best stuff. I'm gonna work on metamorphosis. And you get there and you realize like it, it's it's not even close to what you thought it was. And I find something similar with people who say I want to be a creative director. They work for a long time, let's say seven, eight, 10 years, whatever it might be. They become a creative director. And those people I see a lot of times, let's say 30 to 40% of the people I've run into, they're the ones who get out of the industry within a year or two after becoming a creative director. And it's just, it, it made me think a lot about like, we aren't talking about like career paths or what, what's right for everyone or what the options are. Well, thanks for mentioning the, that, that life journey in this industry that no one yet has completed it. Because it's not like other fields. It's not like architecture that's started thousands of years ago. It's not like, say, industrial design, which was ostensibly uh, got started 100 to 200 years ago. No one's lived a full life. And I know Tim, right. you know, my partner in RevThink, he and I often talk, especially when we talk about owners um, who run shops. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but this would include freelancers uh, as well. Uh, there's... People tend not to end well. They tend not to finish mm -hmm. well. 
And I heard what I heard you saying when you talked about the Camp Mograph experience was, gosh, what? Why is there this imposter syndrome? Why is there this apathy? Um, there's even some anger. There's this desire to escape, mm-hmm. and it, it leads to this just interesting question of, yeah, what what is it that people are looking for? Why does getting the job at Buck or wherever? Why does that seem like the brass ring? But then once you get it, you're not happy, and mm-hmm. that can lead people, of course, to say, well, I'm going to leave. I'm going to start my own thing and become a freelancer. But sometimes those freelancers end up being bitter and frustrated. Sometimes mm-hmm. they go and start their own shops. I mean, I would say maybe just for context, in my experience, the owners that I work with that have gone through that transition, worked at a studio, then went freelance, then started their own shop. Mm-hmm. But if they can make it through those first, call it three to five years, mm-hmm. they tend to be extremely optimistic. But it makes me wonder, for the people that didn't make it, mm-hmm. for those those guys and gals that started that shop and then just said, screw it and gave up. Are they like, where do they go? And right. are they bitter, right. resentful, frustrated? Uh, were they able to convert all their knowledge and their mm-hmm. experience or did they just go get a job at McDonald's? I, I right. don't know. Well, and I think especially now that the, the, the tools and the availability of, you know, we have, we have more clients and we have more canvases than before, but we also have more competition. Right. But I feel like, um, that life, that lifespan, that arc that you just talked about, that used to be 10 to 15 years to get through that, right? Like you, you go to school, you take three or four years to do that. You get out, you start working somewhere. Maybe you freelance, maybe you staff, you work your way up. Let's just say a, a company like Imaginary Forces or Digital Kitchen or one of those stalwart companies that people go, they, they accelerate their growth because of who they're around and the work that comes through there. And then they, they kind of cap out of what they can do and they start their own company, right? Like that t- normally takes eight, 10, 12, 15 years. That lifespan, that that arc of doing that and then either successfully doing that or burning out, like you say, that can happen in three years, right? Like you could go somewhere online to learn something, get good enough to get some work, you know, in a year, two years, maybe. Um, You can freelance for a little while. And then once you do enough freelancing remotely where you see like, wow, I don't like the way that studios run or, you know, I'm not valued for my opinion. I'm just working. I'm just hands, essentially. I'm an extension of someone. Um, I don't like that. I'm going to start my own thing. You know, like. You could do that and then run a studio for a year and you could get into the point where you're like, oh man, I am so done and burned out because I don't have the support infrastructure. I don't have the camaraderie. I don't have the availability of someone to help me find my work. That 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 whole run that would normally take 15 years, you could do the same thing in three to five years. So what does somebody who's 28, 29, 30 do at the end of that versus someone who's 40, 45, 50 you know, in the old, you know, like MoGraph Mark one versus MoGraph Mark two, like it, it, that, that cycle can happen so much quicker. So yeah, I, I do. I think that's why I'm starting to feel that, you know, there is a, an incredible amount of optimism and there's an incredible amount of transparency and openness in motion design versus I think almost all the other creative arts fields. Um, but I do feel like there's this, this underlying simmering, angst, I think is the word that I finally settled on that, that there's, there's frustration, there's jealousy, there's fear. Um, but there is just like a, like a post 35 year old been in the industry for a while, kind of angst amongst not everyone and not probably not even a majority, but like a 10 to 15 to 20% that it it's vitriolic, right? If you just poke a little bit at the surface and I think that might be a byproduct of that is that people don't know why they got into it or they thought they did. And the expectation was not met or the the amount of work and time they had to put into it before requires a lot more now because of the competition of people coming out of schools and all the availability of kind of training now that wasn't there before. 
But that's something I'm really curious about too. And that, that's what we talked about during the fireside chat as well. Well, you said something when we last chatted that also, to me, I thought was actually very cool, mostly because I agree with it. So <laughs> I don't want to just create an echo chamber here. But you said this, you, you said you felt strongly that more artists should become owners. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, I, and I was curious to sort of unpack that because on the one hand, I do definitely believe there is more opportunity for the freelancer who wants to start his or her own shop. Of course, all my clients who run studios and production companies, of course, I support their decision to be owners. Mm-hmm. I, lived, I lived that life myself for 20 years when I was doing Impossible Pictures, and I, I applaud their bravery and their ambition, and I come alongside them to help them succeed. Mm-hmm. But why, why, in your opinion, why do you think it's important? Why should an artist become an owner? Why is that a thing? I mean, I think, I, I, I think that's, I, maybe I define ownership in a slightly wider or slightly different kind of um, meaning or definition that, than most people think right away, right? Like, like that, that traditional work my way to get imaginary forces to find a client or enough clients that I can leave and start my own thing, right? Like how many companies do we know I hate to keep bringing up imaginary forces, but that really was the the kind of um, the the petri dish for a lot of other companies, right? Alma Mater came out of there. Prologue obviously came out of there. You and Co. Like there's an endless uh, Midnight Sherpa. There, there's tons of companies that started there and came out. But I, I also look at ownership even on a maybe on a smaller scale because I think if you leave a motion design company to own a motion design company you still don't own your own work, I guess is the best way to say it. You're still working for, you, you have a client for the same way you did before. <laughs> right. You're still, yeah, exactly. You're still a mercenary to a certain degree. And I, I really, you know, this was a, I think a point of contention, you know, at, at Camp Mograph when we discussed it. Um, but I look to someone like Zach Dixon who runs IV um, animation and, and seeing him taking on client work, but at the same time, nurturing his team and selecting just the right people to build and create their own you know, intellectual property, their own products. Um, and I'm not talking about, which I don't think there's anything wrong with this, and I technically work for a company doing this, but I'm not just talking about training materials and LUT packs and you know textures that you sell on Gumroad. I, I mean like your own content. Like we get paid to design, style, and animate things that sell the world's products. But so few of the people in motion design, compared to music, filmmaking, character animation, people who work on TV and film, comic book artists and writers, for some reason, there is this this lack of that mentality of like entrepreneurial ownership of the product of your own work or the product of your own talents. Right. Um, so I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily saying ownership. I do. I would love to see more people own their own studios that are artists. And I think that's natural in our industry um, to have happened, but there's just this weird thing. Like I know people who work at Pixar and they started their own toy company. You know, I know people who, who you know, have made their own films. Uh, one of my favorite people in the world, Sergio Pablos was probably one of the top two, you know, best 2D traditional animators in the world when he left Disney. Um, and he struggled for a long time starting his own animation studio to not just do work for hire, but sell his own IP. And down the line, <laughs> after lots and lots of failures, he sold uh, the story that became Despicable Me. And off of the, the the business that came from that, he pitched the movie that became Klaus that just won all of the Annie's, you know, for Netflix. Um, and I'm not saying that's for everyone. It, 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 it caused a lot of, like, I think frustration because I'm not saying everyone should do this, but I think anyone can, if that makes sense. Yes. Well, I love the encouragement because, well, first, let me make a quick mention that I do owe credit that Imaginary Forces even spawned Rev Think. Because mm-hmm. my business partner Tim came out of 
right. managing forces, but more on the operations and finance side of things, <laughs> um, interestingly. But I love the that, that point that you make, though, about ownership being broader than I just run my own company and I do work for hire, which, of course, I applaud anyone who wants to start their own studio and do that, even though you're not going to own the content that you produce for your clients once they pay you, you hand it over and, mm-hmm. and you're done. But it is, I, I'll say this, I, I ho- at least hope that the work that we're doing at RevThink is we're starting to create this conversation called, hey, as a business owner, you're going through these stages mm-hmm. of your creative career. Uh, and Tim talks about these four stages all the time. And you're moving from aut- uh, sorry, artist to auteur to curator to collector. Mm-hmm. And as you go through those stages, one of the big sh- shifts that you'll make is the day you start realizing, hey, I'm going to be creating things or my company is going to be creating things that have a a value that we don't transfer to our clients. We create for Mm -hmm. ourselves. And sometimes it's just as simple as we have underutilized capacity. I've had this conversation, I think, Mm -hmm. five times this past week. It's called, hey, in our downtime, we're building this app. I've got Mm -hmm. one client that's building like this amazing app that's going to come out for the industry soon. I've got one that is, of course, producing a show, like a TV show and, and mm-hmm. content. Um, there's any number of things. Um, we, you know, you, I think we, we may have mentioned uh, Dallas, who was mm-hmm. uh, at De Facto Sound. He was on the podcast a while ago. He's got this incredibly runaway hit successful podcast called 20,000 Hertz. He's mm-hmm. an example. Um, and it's funny how I would just say, I think I... I applaud you banging the drum called yes it's cool to uh be in this industry and create motion design yes it's cool to even launch your own shop but maybe broaden the sense of owner mm-hmm. not to simply be you own a business which actually may not be all that valuable if you spend a career there because some people do mm-hmm. that and then they just walk away at the end and they kind of hand over the keys to the landlord for the space mm-hmm. that they rented and they say that was fun and then then what they hopefully yeah. they saved enough enough money, and I just I think we find that there's a lot more that ownership can entail because it leads to a stronger career. This is part of what it means to end well, mm-hmm. to finish well, is for you to shut down your business and be like, oh, but I've created these five or ten other things along the way mm-hmm. that have value, that are giving back, that are creating community, that are, uh, you know, it's a it's a platform or it's a network that I've helped foster. These kinds of things. And, the, mm-hmm. and we can do this despite the fact that we're artists, we're creative people. This is, this is yeah. not just simple uh, business. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I failed miserably at this in my time at Digital Kitchen. But one of the big things I was trying to, to bang the drum, as you say, um, was, was to, to just change our perspective as a company. Um, because we did have a cachet for, for a while, and we did have the work that, that had people calling us that from the right perspective, we looked like a black box that was generating heat that people wanted to stand next to. And I kept on saying over and over, like the equation you just said, like, oh man, you know, we work on these direct, these direct to client jobs and we're making some commercials for TV. And when we have some downtime, it'd be cool to invest back into making some of our own stuff. I pitched really hard at Digital Kitchen to say, well, how about we flip that entire thing? We all have ideas. We all have things that we are trying to develop. How about we make that our main job? And then on our downtime in between that, that's when we take on 
the work that we need to keep the you know the lights on right um and obviously that's that's i mean it's very pie in the sky but with the the 15 to 20 years of of kind of um inventiveness and the cachet of having won the awards they won and just the legacy jobs there there was a way you know, I mean, the best way I can say is like I started at the company three years ago and there's 60 people. And when I walked out the door at Chicago, there were two. Right. So, you know, we, we the, the atrophy happened either way. It would have been a lot cooler to be able to have the atrophy happen while we, on our terms rather than on, on the economics terms. Right. Like it would have been much more interesting to say, let's let's get small. Let's get down to 15, 20 people and take that same runway and do all the stuff that we wish we could do or the stuff that we take it on when we're you know down or we're pitching and waiting for the answers to whether or not we're you know working on a job. Let, let's make that the focus because we did have the audience to be able to go and do that. Right. Like motion design has this 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 interesting time right now where there's wild west for so many clients and they look to they look to motion designers potentially motion design companies potentially as partners and not just service bureaus if you position yourself correctly right like they're we found well i mean and i'm not saying this just as like a pie in the sky hoping it to happen i, I live this right my, my last year and a half at digital kitchen like i generated like six and a half million dollars worth of business because i sold us as being the answer to people who had no answers right i worked with architecture firms i worked with film studios that they could call anyone they could call ilm they could call any of the major agencies but for some reason they called us because we had some weird wrinkle in our body of work and we ran with that right like we we, we did something and and it was very strange for me because the majority of my life has been spent you know working as hard as i can to you know beat people out by by almost through um uh, just working longer and working harder and for the first time i had this opportunity to say like no i think we have these ideas that no one else is going to understand trust us we know technology we know it's coming up we know creative um and i like honestly like for the last year and a half two years i spent most of my time in a room two rooms next to each other full of whiteboards writing down ideas and connecting them together and, you know, pitching those with beautiful imagery, right? We did very little animation. We did very little editing. It was really, for the most part, selling people things that they couldn't think up themselves. And that was really eye-opening because I have no training as as a branding specialist. I don't know anything about social media marketing. Um, I'm not a, a, like, conceptual thinker by trade. You know, I'm an animator who loves a lot of stuff and and can demonstrate how much I love it. It was really interesting to see that there's people who, who they want to be around that. And I think more than any other industry, because the fact that we touch everything, right? We touch type, we touch cameras, we touch video, animation, we're interested in technology that leads to the pathway to AR and XR and MR. Like we can talk the talk right now in a way that a lot of other people can't. And I, I just, I think there's this really interesting opportunity for motion design studios and, and artists to, to take advantage of that. Well, part of what you're saying, I've, I've heard expressed this way, because I, I, I'm, I'm constantly trying to maybe energize people in the industry and many of my clients with this idea that don't don't get too focused on doing the project think about yeah. solving the problem instead and i think if you apply that thinking across the board i love that you said you know for the studios that are properly positioned mm-hmm. because most people think oh if i just go out and tell the world that i offer animation that i i offer this service mm-hmm. that they'll buy it and I, and I tell people, well, the people that are going to buy that are the people that have projects and they're, yeah. they're just asking you to execute They're mm-hmm. They figured out the problem. They've solved it already. They just need you to make that thing. Mm-hmm. The much more interesting opportunities, which is what it sounds like you were doing in your time there at DK is where somebody's coming to you and they're saying, we've got a problem and we don't mm-hmm. even really know what the problem is. Can you help us define it? And then can you help us solve it? 
And there might be any number of projects that come out of that. And if you can engage in that conversation, something like motion design, it sounds so simple. But yeah. you're right. It's, it's a beguiling term. It's so simple. But the truth is you're solving a problem called how are we going to take creativity and ideas and a brand and music and sound and visuals and mm-hmm. typography and, and right and, and communicate something in a way that, that solves this problem. And when yeah. you do that, there's enormous value that shows up. It's incredible. And I think it's also very satisfying and gratifying mm-hmm. as you, the creative person, to go in and solve those scale of problems. Yeah. I mean, I mean, look at this. Like, I, I really feel like you know, the stuff you're talking about right now, right then was that that's what motion design was when I felt like it was starting when it wasn't even motion design, when people were just calling it MoGraph or motion graphics. Right. But like motion design, a lot of times, because you didn't know how to sell it before it calcified around motion design equals C4D plus After Effects. Right. Like, like that's that's we're in danger right now of very much becoming this calcified menu that people choose from. And then we all fight against each other for how much we can charge for it. But before that, people didn't really know exactly what it was and and people wanted to be patrons to that right they wanted their like like a brand doesn't know how to think about themselves in a new way so they go to this group of thinkers that do a lot of weird stuff right like mk12 shinola like like those companies that you couldn't really box them into what they do and you wouldn't know what to get you would get from them when you went to them and there was something exciting about that versus now like there are a lot of amazing studios and the level of craftsmanship is is at an all-time high but it, can you really think of many studios that if you didn't put the name on it, that you could really tell the difference between them? Is there, is there, are there, are there distinctive voices to many of the studios? Could you interchange? One, we're all using the same tools. Two, we're all using the same pool of freelancers, right? We are all looking at each other and just echoing, bouncing off of each other. We're not really expanding the conversation. And I, I've said this at nauseum in other places, but look at the, look at character design in the majority of motion graphics pieces. And they all look the same. They look like they came from the same two or three hands. You know, like that, that wasn't the case 10 years ago when there was less people talking about it. But I, like I said, I, I do think there's this opportunity for people who think about motion design in a, in a slightly less narrow way. Well, for sure. I think maybe part of, I, I don't, I don't want to be too uh, overgeneralized or over stereotype, but I will say, I think there is a tendency in human nature that we don't like to admit it, but when we're afraid and we're scared, we go with what we know and what works. Mm-hmm. And so I think there is a tendency for a lot of, I'll just say up and coming shops. They look at somebody like a buck and they mm-hmm. say, well, that's how you do it. We're going to emulate success. So we're going to create work like that. And we're going to copy and paste their about us statement mm-hmm. and ch- change the names and, you know, change the word from storytelling to <laughs> visualizers or whatever the, right. the whatever phrase might be. Yeah. But that's, but that's, you know, that works for them. So it'll work for us. We're going to kind of do our own version mm-hmm. of that. And I, I, I agree. It, it starts to, you start to create this industry of, well, we're all kind of look alike, sound alike, you know, similar results and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me personally, I find going to some of the conferences and getting outside of my box, traveling a lot and hosting dinners like I do with, with owners. It's this constant mixing it up and colliding and mm-hmm. finding new intersections for me that kind of keeps me energized. Cause I know 
going to blend this year and going down to NodeFest in Australia mm-hmm. and seeing a few of the speakers that were doing something really crazy, really innovative, really wild. Maybe I didn't like it. Maybe I loved it. But it was different. And yeah, that was exactly. really energizing. And would you agree that there's this tendency for not just creatives, but just human beings for us to go with, to, to put ourselves into these restricted categories because it feels safer or more predictable? I mean, I, I might be the wrong person to ask this because I, I honestly left, you know, the, the city that I love, that I was born and raised in, that I thought I would probably live forever because I felt like I was bumping up this glass ceiling that was in, in the creative world here in Chicago or maybe the Midwest. I don't know that there was just this overwhelming nature in the culture, not even just the art about safety and security. And, and and even to the point where I felt like there's a certain amount of energy that, that kind of distrusted anyone who was looking for success or had ambition um, or, or to be honest, was even driven by means other than just financial. Right. Like, like having having an artistic bent or an artistic idea that they were that you're chasing after. I And I think that's still kind of indicative of a lot of the work that I find, you know, in my, you know, the town that I love that I left for, you know, eight years. Um I think it's in human nature for people who that's what they're looking for. Yes. Right. But then you also run into people who it's the reason why, whether it's at school of motion, MoGraph mentor, you know, at the schools I teach, I talk ad nauseum about like developing voice and developing vision. Right. Cause I think those are the only two things that will save the industry. Cause I think it's super dangerous where we're currently at. Right. Like I, I think the only thing saving a lot of motion design right now is, versus something like visual effects is VFX has f- essentially five customers and we have quite a few more, but when everything starts looking the same or honestly, when we all start ripping each other off or we start kind of echoing each other too much, then it does become something that someone can order off of a menu and say, well, you know, I called those other guys that are doing this and it looks very similar and they're willing to do it for, for X, you know, like that, again, I I don't know if you agree, but I feel like that, that that's a very dangerous time. And well, I I agree. I was going to ask, could you maybe even expand a bit? What do you mean by voice and what do you mean by vision? So, you know, like, like I love I love a lot of silly things, but one of the things I love more than anything are comic books, right? And we are living in kind of a golden age of uh, of comic books in terms of like the the amount of stuff that's available and that's out there. But you know, you can go and you can get something from Marvel or DC Comics, and you know what to get, and you expect, it and it kind of scratches the normal itch. And then you look at other people who are taking some risks, and they're doing things that are that are personal. And and sometimes you find these artists that you can even see that that let's say someone has a 10 to 15 career in comic books and the last five years they've been doing their own work. Some of the artists that have voice that, that have a specific thing that maybe they don't even know what it is yet, but they're trying to say, you can trace back to their earliest, most amateur work. And if you walk through it, you can see the voice coming through, right? Like there was a thought process beyond where am I, where am I going to get my next job? How do I keep the lights on? How can I eat? How can I get a car? How can I pay rent? Right? Like that, that you, we all have to do that. I get that. But Sometimes you see these people. I think Patrick Clare is an amazing example of someone like that, right? Like you can say whatever you want to say about the way all of his work ended up and how people say like title design has kind of, you know, it's gotten very reductive because everyone's chasing Patrick's success. But if you look at his earliest work, right, I remember seeing him early, early on, and I can't remember the name of the piece off the top of my head, but you can see what he was working through from the earliest stuff. And then his most recent finished polished pieces that still feels like Patrick Clare. It still looks like something, there's a bit of him back there, right? Um, 
but that's why Patrick Clare is Patrick Clare because he's one of like maybe four people I can think of. The guys at Ordinary Folk, right? Um, J.R. Knest, Jorge Estrada. If you look at his early, early work and what he was able to do by infusing kind of character animation Disney principles into motion design, into shape layers, you know, squares and circles animating as elegantly as the most beautifully animated characters in Disney animation. You can see that from his student work and then the manifesto that, that Ordinary Folk launches with. You can see those steps tracing all the way and it's kind of created its own ethos and a ton of other people you know emulating that and and kind of chasing it but i mean there's only a handful of people like that right like there's four or five in motion design all of the work i can think of there's there's only a small handful of people that have like an authorial like voice that you can track back and see their their kind of um progression and those people happen to also all be the people who stand out and are kind of the leaders and the stewards and what everyone else is chasing well, what I'm hearing, and you tell me if you agree, part of what I'm hearing is that it's it's what I refer to as a point of view yes, or even a, yes. an, a, an, an opinion about the world. And of course, it, it, it also derives from mission and purpose and a sense of a mm-hmm. sense of why that comes through the work. And, you know, in a way, I find you giving, ex, you know, maybe rather than defining it, almost giving examples mm-hmm. saying, Look at that example. Look at that example. Look at ex- that example, and and you can almost infer what voice means from from those examples. Oh, right, I do recognize that Patrick Clare thing when mm-hmm. I look at his body of work that does stand apart. But now, what about vision? How is vision different than voice? I mean, voice voice. I feel like is you know something you can't help, but but it comes out through your work, and if you either attempt to, or you get lucky enough that that can be nurtured, that, that eventually grows. But vision is then, you know, at some point in your career, you have to make a decision on what you want to do. Right. So these, these people that I meet that are frustrated, disappointed, depressed, sometimes angry at someone like you at RevThink or a Chris Doe, or even frankly, school of motion for giving away, giving away the keys to the industry for teaching people for like, I think that comes from that second half of it, right? Like they may never have had a voice that was nurtured or whatever, but they also personally never took the time to, to like decide on their vision. And it goes all the way back to what we started at. When, when I meet students who are in the feature animation, you know, want to get into feature animation, they know where they want to go, but the best of them also have things they want to say and they have a vision on how they're going to get there, right? They're, they're not the people who go to one studio and stay there their whole life. They have a idea of what they want to do. And sometimes it comes when you're a student, sometimes it comes 10 years into it, but you know, like that, that's that deciding moment where you are no longer a, a riding the current of the industry, but you are steering with the way you want to steer if that makes any sense. And, and sometimes that comes from people saying, you know what, I'm starting my own company because I don't like working this way. Um, someone like Sander Van Dyke, right? He worked on in School of Motion. He teaches the advanced motion methods. Um, I met him a long time ago, I think at least like five, six, seven years ago in New York. And he was, even at that time, people were just starting to find out who he was and what he was capable of. He was working for Google, all the big tech companies. And even then there was just this bubbling up of, I kind of don't want my work to, to represent people who aren't doing social good. And it was just this like throw off, throw off comment, right? Like just something we were just at lunch talking about. And then years later now, like he, he only really works on things that he thinks his work can, can help or the, the 
clients or the brands or the products that he's helping create exposure for, um, he, he feels good about it when he's done, right? Um, that's vision to me. And that, I'm not saying that's the one vision everyone should have, but the fact that he could take a stand at some point in his career and say, this is what I'm going to do. Again, I can only think of a handful of people that really have kind of like made those decisions versus like if you look at something like filmmakers, right? There are a lot of people who will just take the job and do the work. But if you get to the point where you're making films or you're a TV director, like you've had to have those two things in your life and made those choices to, to get to where you're at. Well, you're, you, something you said there when you described that, uh, that, that role of vision, which sounds like a much longer term mm-hmm. narrative that drives one's career or even one's life. It, 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 and you brought up uh, School of Motion, Christo, other, other folks like RevThink and so forth. And it kind of made me wonder how I've always thought of, I've always thought of business as simply a means to an end. Mm-hmm. To create a re- to create a result in the world, mm-hmm. and and money is almost like the the lubricant. It's the oil in the engine that sort of makes the whole thing go round. Right? Do you think there's Do you think there's a bias though somehow against whether it's money against business um, sales? Right? Sales is like mm-hmm. a, a nasty word when it comes to creatives. Do you Do you think there's a there's a a bias out there that we still have yeah. to help people maybe appreciate or, or gain a new understanding? I mean, it's definitely, I mean, it, it's, the industry is very bipolar, I think, because, and I'm guilty of it as much as anyone else when not to, I can't believe I'm bringing this up years later, but I think it still comes up with me in day-to-day experiences with people. When Chris Doe, you know, tells people not to be bricklayers and it lights the industry on fire for a couple of weeks, right? Um, it's interesting that people will get really upset about that and say like, you know, all kinds of, you know, frustration or anger or you're a hypocrite because, and I, I can count myself as one of those people, but I've had the long talks with Chris. So I feel okay. You bring it up. Like, you know, you're a hypocrite because you're using people who you call bricklayers to get where you want to go. And you're willing to stand on their shoulders to extricate yourself from this mess that you see below you to become this thought leader or whatever it is, this life coach or whatever it is that you want to be. But then at the same time, I find it really interesting when you tell people, well, you know what, maybe, maybe you do need to think more about, you know, these things I'm talking about, voice, vision, ownership beyond just like owning a company, creating things that you can, that will outlast you, right? Leaving something back, you know, leaving something to other people. Um, it's crazy how much people are like, how am I going to have time to do that? Or who do you think I am? Or like, I just work in, in my software and I make stuff and I'm looking for my next job. And I'm like, okay, well, well, who's the hypocrite then at that point? Because, and I like, I'm saying I'm guilty of it too, but you know, there, there's an interesting point of view there that I've never really understand that I don't feel like you get as much in as much as I love motion design. I don't feel like you get that in places like animation and filmmaking. Like, I guess the, the key thing is like, we have not been struck with the, and again, people listen to this that know me will probably be upset. Like we, we haven't been struck with the entrepreneurial bug in a way that is not the buzzwordy version of like the Gary Vaynerchuk got to be an entrepreneur hustle. I'm not talking about that, but more about the idea that my work has more of a lifespan than the time that the commercial is on air, right? Like it blows my mind that almost everything I ever worked on, honestly, before I got to Digital Kitchen, I spent a two to three X multiplier working on it versus the amount of time it lived in the world. Like that, that always disappointed me. Like it was so, I hate, it was so ephemeral. And, and I think that that's part of where that frustration is. It's like you work so hard, you're always learning. There's this tidal wave of people you're competing against. And all of it is for the final result of I pay, I did one small part of a Coca-Cola commercial that lasted two weeks on air. 
right? I mean, you say you use the word ephemeral, which I think is a very nice and erudite word for what I would call disposable. Sadly, sure, yeah, you know, and that and it, it is unfortunate. Um, but but I hear you in a way almost inviting yourself and the rest of us into something larger. That there are opportunities for uh, artists and specifically motion designers as we move move into the future. There's opportunities to create more and to create mm-hmm. something that even potentially lasts. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I don't, I don't see why, I mean, that, that's what I thought was so interesting. And I felt like it was kind of a challenge, you know, like the, there's, I had some good friends in the crowd during the fireside chat that were like, so what are you doing? And I, I, I thought that was a really good, good question to throw back is like, I'm saying all these things as a hypothetical and as a, as a question, you know, to the industry, but to myself at all. And part of my answer is that's why I'm going to school of motion to, to find that out. You know, like, like it's not just to teach, you know, to make money creating classes to teach people. It's to go and find other people to give myself the time and the energy to be able to go and find people that might be doing that. And then also find ways to do that for myself, you know, under the guise of something like school of motion. But yeah, I, I, it's strange how it's it's a little bit, you know, that idea of entrepreneurship is really a, a dirty word in an industry that's basically built on it. Yeah, I, and I think, I, you know, I live inside of a, maybe a, a contrarian bubble because I spent 20 years running my own business. I've now been consulting and advising owners for, you know, five plus years. So to me, that just sounds crazy. Like, how mm-hmm. could there be... How could there be a bias against that? So maybe the next question is, how do we how do we address it? How do we encourage and inspire for those who might be a fit for mm-hmm. some sort of entrepreneurial future? Uh, how do we inspire them? Are we do we need to get on stages? Do we need to record mm-hmm. more podcasts like this? Do we need <laughs> to have a, a you know School of Motion needs to do a course on this? What what do you think is going to maybe pr- provide the the broader perspective that, that people might need? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a silly way to say it, but our industry is really good at copying people. So let's give them the examples to copy, right? Like we're really good at taking one thing and replicating it until the point of, you know, everybody agrees that it's something worthy chasing. Um, I, I think there's very little discussion about stuff like this in the field, right? Like there are a lot of podcasts where people talk about their origin stories or they talk about the companies they worked at, but there's very little talk about the actual work itself. And then there's even less discussion about the impetus or the energy or the things that, that, that sparked those jobs, right? It blows my mind how much we talk, but we don't really say very much in an industry compared to something like filmmaking or something like music or even animation, where there's a lot more discussion about the work and what can be done and how things can be pushed. I, I think the, the, the type of dialogue needs to change. I think there just needs to be a lot more examples, right? Like I would love to hear from artists of all the different industries that took a risk or, or carved out some of their own time or, or found ways to invest their own capital back into them and, and see what those examples look like and then show every single time, like you could have done that, right? Like you're a motion designer. You could have teamed up with a, a programmer and you could have made a game. I have a really good friend of my wife's that um, left the company he was working at, spent two and a half years, you know, living fairly lean, um, put out a, a game on Steam and it's made a, like over a million dollars in like three, I think three months. Right. And now he essentially is like working on building his own company to be able to support that and create sequels. Like, and that was a tough decision on his part to not just take the next job. Um, but he has it in him and he basically just hired an animator. You could be the animator who is the partner on that, right? You could be the person who learns how to program. Um, there's just so the amount of opportunities out there. Like I said, I, one of my favorite movies, I think that talks about art. Um, it's my favorite Pixar movie. It will probably always be is Ratatouille and I'll probably screw it up, but 
the whole and the entire the entirety of the the movie is literally built around the quote at the end of the guy who's reviewing the restaurant saying that and I'll, I'll mess it up but that it's essentially that not everyone can become a genius but genius can come from anywhere right not everyone can be a great artist but a great artist could come from anywhere so don't don't mistake what i'm saying i'm not saying all of us are going to quit the industry and we're all going to go make apps and movies and cartoons and youtube videos and comic books and music albums and be millionaires but I do think that there's a lot more potential for some people in industry to do that when I'm seeing almost none. Well, I would agree. And I think it maybe that is a great next step is to find a proper platform or stage mm-hmm. to maybe open people's minds to, let's just call it the alternative to, you know, everyone here just wants to go get a job at Buck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, right? So mm-hmm. don't. Don't mishear me. I, I absolutely adore Buck. But to the people that are that are there that are might be thinking, oh, I'm just going to go get a job at that dream company and then my mm-hmm. life will be complete and then find themselves there and realize, wait a minute, I'm frustrated. I'm angsty. I'm not this. this there's more out there for me, but I don't know what to do because I this this is all I ever told myself or it's all the in- industry ever told me was that I should just do this. Yeah, maybe we can have a some sort of a conversation called here's what motion design and even more broadly uh, production and filmmakers and other creatives in this Mm -hmm. space, sound designers, here's some other things that people in our industry that are doing that is not just the next commercial. It's not the work for hire. It's they're inventing, they're building, Mm -hmm. they're solving really interesting problems and give people a sense of, Oh, well, gosh, if there's 10 examples of things that had nothing to do with creating the next disposable commercial mm-hmm. that runs for two weeks, maybe I can figure out my place. Maybe I can go and invent and create and actually own something. Uh, yeah, and maybe business is the, the means to that end, or maybe it's just as own it as an individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that's a very, I think that's a very cool optimistic story that I would love to help invite people into. And I know you would too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's, that, that's all it's going to take for, for a handful of people, right? Like it, we, it, we, I say it over and over, we, we live in such a amazing time, right? Like the one thing that I feel like motion design companies do such a poor job at is that we do a great job solving the problem uh, for companies and brands on how to speak about themselves to create more interest and understanding. I feel like we're really awful at doing that for ourselves, like to a company, like even we just, t- we talked about Buck ad nauseum, but they just did this giant, amazing beautiful, massive relaunch of their company, right? And when you go to buck.co, the first thing you see is their logo. And right behind that, the single most generic description of a company I've ever seen in my life. Yes. Buck. Thank you Buck. for saying it. I'll say, I'll say it a lot. I, I don't understand. Like there, there's so many, and I know what they're trying to do to a certain degree and I can appreciate it, but this is not just saying buck, but it's the most recent example. Every one of our companies say this buck is a creative company that makes art, design, and technology. Like you could say Bueller, Bueller. Yes. After that, it's the most important, like, like I'm aging myself at that, but it's just like all this exciting, beautiful, amazing work. That's the sum total of like some of the world's most amazing artists collaborating for years at a time together. And the single least interesting description of it, like, it's amazing to me that we, we, as a, a, a industry collectively, we can't imaginably figure out how to market ourselves when that's all we really ever do for anyone else. Um, but maybe that's part of the problem is that we don't it know. Is. We don't, we don't even know our own, if the best, the most highly touted best company in the world really doesn't value themselves enough to find an interesting way to say what they do, that's, there's a core problem. There's, there's something at the, at the core of it. So it is partially well, psychological. It's part of, um, 
you'll love this. In, at the Ben Design Conference, I spoke on this topic I called our crisis of unhelpfulness. Mm-hmm. And that is the world's problems are seeking solutions, but they can't find us because right. we're saying stupid things like, you know, blank blank is a motion design studio focused mm-hmm. on storytelling and we're passionate and we love collaboration. Like we've got to, we've got to dig deeper. Now I'll just say this sort of in, in crit, in criticism as well as in defense of Buck, they don't have to prove anything to anyone. So they have the luxury. They sure. could stand up and say, we're a cool company and people right. would still hand them all these great projects, all the great work because they're, 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 they have a legacy that they're, they're sure. feeding upon. But here, can I, can I, can I counter that just a little bit too? There's that, and, and partially this is so that book doesn't hunt me down and, and, you know, put me out of my misery um, because I obviously love them and think their work is amazing. But at the same time, you can go five entries down on their website and I feel like this is also something that happens with companies and artists all the time is that you almost always find like what used to just be called blog, but sometimes it's called, you know, whatever, like sketches or doodles or whatever. Buck chooses to call it research, right? When you go to that, the last thing on their page after they're about their contact, their jobs, and this is incredibly exciting. And it would have been amazing if Buck would have led with this and just said, Buck, research, not your average motion design studio or animation studio. And then you scroll through and... when I look at this, I get a sense of who they are as people and what they're interested in and what they do. And I don't know how I could hire someone to do this or what I would need, but immediately, I immediately get this sense of like, holy shit, I want to go to this place. I want to see these people. I want to meet them. I don't know how I can use them, but I don't know anybody else that does something like this. Like, like, let me knock on the door as fast as I can to get there. Right. Like that, because <laughs> right. that this stuff is super exciting, right? It's not just the the big clients and the typical work and the two most famous pieces they've done, but it's just buried away. And I feel like we all, we all do this, right? We have these cool things that we're trying when we are in the back of our mind, but will Coca-Cola need to see this to hire them? No, but they're going to call Buck anyway. Right. Well, look, this is almost, this is almost a whole other podcast, right? Because this, this goes so deep because it really goes to the, this, this core question of, how do you as an artist, as a creative or as a creative firm, how do you communicate your DNA, your secret mm-hmm. sauce, your magic to the world in a way that people really understand and say, oh, I'm so curious. I want to learn more. I want to work with you. Right. I want I want that thing. Um, and maybe, you know, I'd be open to having a, a lengthy conversation about that because I spend a lot of my time helping companies figure that out. <laughs> and it's a it's a tough tough uh problem to solve and it's a big one for especially the up-and-comers who just think oh if i just talk like buck or like imaginary forces then i'll succeed but they don't have the 20-year legacy behind them so they really struggle they don't stand out and so forth it's definitely yeah it's definitely called arms right like i I look at this and i know buck has done work for mcdonald's and i think if, if buck would have approached mcdonald's with a brief a response to brief that said mcdonald's is a company that ships frozen patties to your to your neighborhood and heats them for lunch, right? <laughs> they'd, be, they'd, be, they'd be walked out of the room, right? They'd be like, Wait, right. "What are you? Are you, are you? Is this a joke? Where's the other? Where's the other pitch?" Right? So like, and it's just like, what? Where's the? I don't know. It's just a symptom I see, and it's honestly um, one of the the things that I saw in my time at Digital Kitchen that we we suffered from it as well, right? Like we we could not figure out the right way to talk about ourselves in a way that that would create the same amount of excitement that we did for any of our clients. Yeah, well, the uh, the old saying, right? The cobbler's kids have no shoes. Uh, you, mm-hmm. we, we, as creatives, we generally speaking are brilliant 
at figuring out how to communicate on behalf of our clients, right. how to how to sell their product, how to position their their brand, how to communicate this amazing thing. When, but when we have to do it for ourselves, oh boy, it's mm-hmm. it's tough. So yeah, yeah maybe maybe the, the the moral of the story is a one motion design studio should hire another motion design studio <laughs> to create to create their positioning and their messaging. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be an amazing <laughs> experiment? I would love to see. That. I'd love to see Gunner hire, hire Buck and Buck hire Gunner and see what comes out of that. Yeah, wouldn't that be fun? Oh my gosh, that would be a trip. Well, so tell me this, sir. Uh, I think we should wrap up because we're just over the hour point, I believe, which has been a total blast for me. Um, I can tell you and I could, could, we could probably do this a couple times a year and never run out of stuff to talk about. But for the sake of, for the sake of brevity, uh, <laughs> for people that want to just stay in touch with you and or want to, to connect with you through School of Motion, what have you, what, where can we point people that want to stay connected and keep hearing from you well thanks a lot i, I appreciate that um the easiest way to get a hold of me is um through twitter um my handle on pretty much everything is otternod o-d-d-e-r-n-o-d um you can you know you can at me you can dm me you can you know say whatever you want to me i normally respond pretty quickly and then if you did want to like have some more focused time i, I offer up these open office hours um two or three times a week during my lunch break um you can go to calendly.com slash otternod um and i have like 15 and 30 minute kind of intervals like i said two to three times a week depending on my schedule and i and we normally do um like 30 minute demo reel reviews and we kind of work through you know, maybe what troubles you're having finding a job or, you know, if you're trying to figure out what your, what your next step is in terms of, um, you know, career, like, are you, are you looking to try to become an art director? Do you want to level up your skills? Um, and that's, that's, you know, something I do outside of school of motion, but now that, you know, I'm there, it, I think it's, um, it's reinforced by that. And is there, is your, uh, portfolio or the, just what you've been doing over the course of your career, is that visible anywhere? Do you have a, um, yeah, I have, um, I have a really bad, I think it's a Tumblr, Tumblr blog, ryansummers.net. Um, and then my Vimeo.com slash Otternod has probably most of my, most of my work there. My demo reels do for, I think my demo reel is still fairly, fairly representation of what I've done. Um, it's probably, probably three years old though. Yeah. I think about four, three or four years ago, I just gave up. I said, you know, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not doing any more demo reels. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, thanks, uh, Ryan. Thanks so much for the for the conversation. Best of luck with School of Motion. I give my best to Joey. I love what you guys are doing. Obviously, I'm a I'm a big fan, a big supporter, and I would really look forward to hopefully sharing a stage with you someday soon. Uh, and we'll we'll just continue, hopefully, inspiring our our community to understand what it what it looks like to live out an entrepreneurial career, how how, how to own things, um, how to how to escape whatever that that angst is that you talked about or that you discovered. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate it. Thanks for, for asking the big questions from people and, and, you know, challenging people to push, push further than they may um, naturally on their own. I really appreciate it. And I love hearing the podcast, um, hearing other people's experiences. You've been listening to the Rev Thinking Podcast. For more information on upcoming accelerators, events, or to learn how RevThink advises creative entrepreneurs like you, connect with us at RevThink.com.